Thank you for joining me on another episode of Resisting the Winds. I am offering a bonus episode to my series uh, on the Lord's Supper, specifically a critique of the Lutheran position of the Lord's Supper. I, in my last video, I mentioned how there was only one more video to come, and that was a summary of my views, a summary of all the videos, and I do still plan on doing that. But I decided that it would be extremely helpful to do a response video to Dr. Jordan Cooper. Now, I've brought up Dr. Cooper before. It was not my intention to make this a personal thing with Dr. Cooper. As I said when I brought him up before, he's way more red than me. Uh, he's he's a waste, he's much smarter than me, so I don't pretend to be superior to him intellectually or uh, credentially or <laughs> in any other sense of the word. Uh, but I do think he's wrong on this, and I also think that he's easily one of the brightest, most articulate uh, defenders of his side in the current day. Uh, and so I think it would be fruitful still to interact with the best of the best and uh, to really lay out what the differences are and show a, hopefully, um, a sufficient reformed response. So I think that this, this video will end up being very helpful to the series. And just kind of seeing, here's where the Lutheran's coming from in a, in a quick, you know, summary, and here's the reformed response. And uh, so I hope you enjoy. He uh, made a video uh, a few years ago, Five Proofs that Christ's true body and blood are present in the sacrament. And so we are going to hear his five proofs and then uh, respond to them. Now, he did mention, I, I haven't played this part of the clip, he mentioned it as an introduction, that he, de he does have a fuller explanation of these things. Sometimes it's kind of unfair when someone makes just like a brief video and then people spend a long time uh, responding to it, right? Because, you know, they're trying to be brief and the responders are not. It's, it would be like having a debate where there's an unequal amount of time given to the debaters. That, that wouldn't be fair. So we want to be fair to him and say that I'm sure he's thought through these things and uh, has some semblance of an answer to these things, but obviously I'm unconvinced. I I've, I've, I've think I've read them from others. I'm unconvinced and uh, I'm going to try to just lay out my position why. So enough uh, with all that. Let's begin. Here is Dr. Cooper giving his five reasons for believing that Christ's true body and blood are present in the Lord's Supper, in the Eucharist. Now, the first point that I'm going to give is that it's simply the literal and clearest meaning of the final words of Jesus that he gives, or the words of institution when he celebrates the Lord's Supper with his disciples. What Jesus said here is pretty simple. This is my body. This is my blood. And so the question we have then is, what does Jesus mean? Does Jesus mean that it is his body? Does Jesus mean that it is his blood? Or does he mean something else? The first argument is that this, this is just the clearest, plainest, literal interpretation of the text, right? You, you will often hear sometimes people when they talk about hermeneutics, talk about biblical interpretation. You will sometimes hear people say things like, you always take the Bible literally, first until you have good reason to not take it literally, you know, later on. And I think that's kind of what he's getting at here. I mean, Jesus said, this is my body, so believe it's his body, right? Like that's Why are we trying so hard to work around it? And I, I want to challenge that in a couple of ways. Uh, first and foremost, I, I, I reject that that is the, the plain, most natural reading. I, I, I agree that it's the mo more literal reading, 
Um, but let me remind you that the Lutheran position is not pure literalism. Uh, in one of the videos we've already done, I have Dr. Cooper on record saying that there is a figure of speech used in the words of institution, namely when Jesus says the word body. Because the Lutheran position believes that the body, it, there's more present there than just the body. The body is present, the blood is present, the soul is present, the divinity is present, and the bread is present. And so when Jesus says, this is my body, he argues like that is a synecdoche for the whole of Christ. So even Dr. Cooper, even the Lutheran position says, in the words of institution, there is symbolic language being used. There are figures, there is at least one figure of speech being used. It's, so it would be unfair to say the Lutheran position has the literal reading. It's not like yes or no, literal, non-literal. It's more of a spectrum. How literal, uh, how figurative, because the Lutheran position has some figurative usage. Now, what I will admit is the, the Lutheran position is a little bit more literal than the Reformed position. But when you say this is just the literal interpretation, what do you mean by that? Because why should I prefer the literal interpretation? With any given text, with any given book, with any given genre, why should I prefer the literal interpretation? I think the more helpful terminology to use is it's the more natural interpretation or the most obvious interpretation, something like that. Because I don't necessarily want to know what's the literal interpretation of every Bible verse. I want to know how did the original audience receive this? How was it, how was the original audience intended to receive this? I think the more natural reading is the figure of speech. I think that we, we tend to always assume figure of speech when things which are obviously not the case are so matter-of-factly stated the case. If I tell a parent, I've told my kid a million times to stop doing that, what's the natural way of reading that? Figure of speech, hyperbole. I don't have to say, in a manner, in a certain sense, or hyperbolically I've told him, what's the literal interpretation of that? Well, you would count to a million. But no one wants the literal interpretation of that because we know that that's how figure of speeches work. It's obviously not the case. And so you immediately and naturally assume symbolism. If I, if I said my wife's beauty is the sunrise each morn, everyone would just assume this is poetic. You would just assume this is symbolic. You wouldn't take me literally. Um, so again, I, I, I could keep listing off examples, but I think that when figures of speech are used, it's obvious and it's plain. And usually the work has to be done to explain it's not, it's not a figure of speech. No, trust me, I know this sounds crazy, but it's, it's literal. And Jesus doesn't put that work in. I'm not saying Jesus has to, but if you're just saying, here's a text where Jesus holds up something which is obviously not his body, and he says, this is my body. And then you put that in the context of the fact that later in that day, he was going to be actually broken and pierced and persecuted. Like you put it all in this context. I think that the symbolic interpretation is the natural interpretation. Maybe not the literal, but it is the natural and obvious one. And to add to that, especially because remember, what was Jesus uh, eating? We call it the Lord's Supper because that's what it's transformed into. But what was it eating? The Passover. And I would argue that the Passover that the Jewish people partook of once a year was steeped in symbolism. So when you take just the grammar that I think it's just an obvious figure of speech, as figure of speeches tend to be obvious, 
and the fact that they were already eating a meal steeped in symbolism, I think the more natural, surface level reading is the symbolic one. I think it. I think you have to go way above and beyond to try to prove that no, he, he actually wasn't speaking in what is so obvious here, which is this is not actually his body. Additionally, the Lutheran position does not read this text the way the Lutheran position says they read this text. If you want to take the literal reading, we've already refuted that in the series by quoting Thomas Aquinas. And Thomas Aquinas refuted what we now refer to as the Lutheran position by saying that the Lutheran position, if it were true and Jesus were speaking literally, he would say, here is my body, not this is my body. Because remember, the Lutheran position is that the bread does not go away. That the bread is still present, but that Christ's body is with the bread everywhere. That's just why some Lutherans, although I think Jordan, I think Dr. Cooper does not like this language, but some Lutherans will use the phrase in, with, and under the bread. And that's just a phrase to say that the, the bread is present, but the body is also everywhere present. But so here's the point. When Jesus held up what he, that thing in his hand, and he said this, this is my body. The Lutheran position doesn't believe that, not even on a literal sense. Because he's holding bread, yet he's calling it his body. You know what you call that? A lie. If, if Jesus, if the Lutheran position was true, Jesus could not say, this is my body. Because that would be not true, because that's actually bread. It's still bread. He would need to say, here is my body. Or he would need to say, with this is my body. Or he would need to say, attached to this or 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 around this or something like that but when he says this is my body he's calling something that is not his body his body and that's not true that's a lie and that's why the roman catholic position by the way teaches that the bread transforms into the body and that there's no more bread left and they do this because they inherently recognize that in order to read this literally you can't have any bread left otherwise jesus is calling bread his body and his body is not bread so the Lutheran position does not take this literally. They don't read it literally. They don't. Now, uh, people are going to point out here that, well, Jesus does use symbolic language in other places. So Jesus says things like we think of the I am sayings of John's gospel. I am the vine. I am the door. Um, uh, you know, I am the gate, <laughs> the sheep gate. Uh, I am, you know, we have all sorts of sayings where Jesus says, I am something. And we say, well, that's clearly metaphorical, it's symbolic, therefore this phrase here is also symbolic. But I want to point something out there, because it's not wrong to say that Jesus does use symbolic language at times. He certainly does. Parables are a kind of symbolism and metaphor, uh, of course. And we have Jesus at times saying he is certain things. And if we take it in the strict literal sense, we know that that's not true. So when Jesus says, I am the door, uh, do we believe that Jesus is literally a door like the door that's behind me? Well, clearly not. So the question then is, are these parallel statements? Is this is my body a statement that is parallel to I am the door, for example? We'll use that, that example. Well, here's, here's the question I want to ask. When you say this is my body, which part of that sentence is the one that you're saying is symbolic or not literal? And because we have this, where Jesus is holding up the bread, you know, this is my body. Uh, so we have the first, which would be the, the subject of the sentence, which is this. And remember, I just said, the Lutherans don't believe the subject of the sentence there. Jesus says, 
this is my body. And they don't believe that that was his body. They believe his body was present with that, but that in and of itself was not his body. This is, okay, then we have the verb, which is the is, and then we have my body. Um, well, let me go to the end, the direct object, which is my body. Um, is that part symbolic? Well, that part couldn't be symbolic because this is the thing that's broken for you. That's interesting because he doesn't believe it's symbolic, but he does believe it's a figure of speech. <laughs> he, he does believe that body is representing more than just the body, right? So he, he, he does believe it's not symbolic. That would not be the right word, but he does believe that there is a figure of speech used here. That he does believe there is metaphoric, poetic, figurative language used in the word body. He believes that. Okay, so this is the body that's given for them. So body is literally Jesus's body um, because it's pretty clear that he's talking about this is that thing which is going to be given uh, for your salvation right after this. So most people haven't said that that part is symbolic. So then we're left with the verb in the middle there. Before we get to the verb, so also notice if we're going to take the literal reading, how is the, he just said that the body is going to be, this is my body which is going to after this be broken for you. But Jesus doesn't describe his body in future tense broken, but present tense. This is my body, which is broken. So again, the Lutheran position and the Roman Catholic position played out to its logical conclusion. You have two sacrifices now. Jesus's actual literal body is broken in the Lord's Supper. And then his actual literal body is again broken. It's broken twice. You have two sacrifices. And some of the biggest theological, philosophical gymnastics I've ever heard, it's more so from the Roman Catholic side, because they not only have to do this with the Lord's Supper, the first, the institution of the Lord's Supper, but they have to do this with every single mass that's ever created, and trying to explain how all of these sacrifices are only one sacrifice. And it's, it, <laughs> I won't say much more about that. But, but again, the Lutherans, at a microcosm, at a smaller scale, have that same problem here. Jesus is actual body was broken before he was betrayed before he was hung on a cross because his literal body was broken when he broke the bread before his sacrifice so jesus did not tell them this is my body that will be broken jesus told them this is my body which is broken for you so the lutheran position has to come up with some pretty intense philosophy here to make the future sacrifice retroactively go back into time and actually be the sacrifice of the mass and then that same sacrifice happens later on but it's one sacrifice it's not two right so he doesn't he i think the timeline here is it doesn't work very well with this literal reading or is and they say well is really means represents now let's see if that's really parallel to the statement i am the door Okay, so if that was going to be a parallel statement, it would have to be the word am that would be symbolic, right? That's the verb there. So I am the door. Is that symbolic? Well, no. Does Jesus represent the door? Is that what Jesus is saying? No, that doesn't make sense. No, Jesus literally is the door. Uh, the part that we might say is a kind of metaphor is door. But even then, it's true. He is the door. He is the, the way into eternal life, right? He is the thing that you have to enter through, just like you have to open a door to enter into a room to receive eternal life. Uh, or think of, I am the vine. He is the life source. OK, 
Okay, so it's the word vine, it's the regret object in those sentences that are uh, giving a different kind of, of meaning. Um, so you can't make a parallel. So just because Jesus says, I am the door, I am the vine, does not mean that uh, this is somehow a parallel statement so that when we read, this is my body, we can somehow say that it doesn't mean what, what it pretty clearly says. And now, I have a lot of agreement here, but some disagreement. So I do agree that kind of the standard response that non-Lutherans and non-Roman Catholics give when they encounter someone who believes in the literal presence is they'll say, well, Jesus also says he is the door. Jesus also says he is, you know, the vine. And I do agree with Dr. Cooper. I don't think that that in and of itself is a good argument. It can be made into a good argument with more work, but just simply saying, well, Jesus also says, I am the door doesn't prove anything because what's what's the logic of that statement you're essentially saying that because jesus uses metaphors he always uses metaphors right just because jesus metaphorically described himself as a door or a, as a vine does not automatically mean that in a different context in a different chapter in a different book he's using metaphor so i don't think that merely saying jesus called himself the vine proves that when he said this is my body he was using figurative language so i do think it's kind of a bad argument and so therefore i don't have much to to criticize here because he's he, he's he's comparing those statements to the statement of this is my body and i'm not coming from the same argument i'm not coming from the same place with the kind of hypothetical objection he's raising but i will say i i think that in trying to parallel the grammar of these sentences, he's missed the argument that the Reformed made, at least that, that Beza made, that I've discussed already, that the word is can be sort of identified as the key word. And that's because the word is, it doesn't just have a literal usage. I, in, in one of our previous videos, I talked about how is can have figurative or substantive meanings. And I, you know, I gave the example of eating an ice cream bar. And I could say, this is manna from heaven. And everyone would know I don't mean that substantively. I don't, I don't mean that it's, it's literally manna from heaven. But I could also say, this is sugar-free. Now, grammatically, those sentences are exactly the same. They're exactly the same grammatically, but clearly the word is is being used figuratively in one sense and substantively in another sense. I, I think that he passed over the way the word is can be used uh, by trying to compare it to these other sentences. Don't compare it to the other sentences. Let's just talk about can the word is be used in figurative languages? And I would, I, again, I would, I would call you to go back. I have a video called what does this mean or what does is mean? I can't remember what it's titled. But in that I give biblical examples of the word is being used figuratively. And, and I'll also say even I disagree not just with Dr. Cooper here but even I have to admit Beza a little bit where it's weird to me that Beza entertained this argument so much. Which So the, the Lutherans asked Beza the same thing like give us the word which is being used symbolically here. And, and Beza met their challenge, he said, it's is. Uh, but to me, that's kind of a bizarre, I, I don't think that that's how figurative language works. Figurative language is not determined by grammar. And I think John Calvin made this point, and he's often, I think, ripped out of context, where he says something like, in order to understand this, you have to ignore the grammar or something like that. And he's usually ripped out of context when 
and it and it's made to appear like he's sort of giving up the debate, right? And just saying we just have to believe it, even though the text clearly says otherwise. But I think I think Calvin's making the same point as I do, which is that grammar does not determine figurative language. Um, context and usage determines figurative language. The only time grammar determines figurative language is in English, at least. Uh, one of our figures of speech is similes. You have metaphors and you have similes, and metaphors and similes are very, very similar, except a simile uses the words like or as. So if I say, my wife's beauty is a morning sunrise, that's a metaphor. If I say my wife is as beautiful as the morning sunrise, that's a simile, because the second one used a term as or like. So a simile is one of the only figures of speech where the grammar really matters. Like you have to have a certain word or else it falls apart. But other figures of speech don't work like that. You don't analyze the grammar, it's usage. So I think it's kind of silly to make me, to pin me down, which word here is symbolic. My my response is the whole phrase. It's the whole phrase. The whole phrase is being used to communicate a real and literal truth in symbolic terms. And that's how I think all figures of speech typically work. If we're going to take this statement at face value in its clearest intended meaning, this is my body, the clearest way to understand that is that indeed Jesus means it as he says it. And we can't use other symbolic statements of Jesus because they are not parallel statements to try to negate the clear meaning of Jesus in this text. I agree with his latter point that we can't just say, hey, look, there are other statements that are not grammatically the same of metaphor, so this has to be symbolic. That's not true. But re-listen to the first part of the video. I, I passionately deny that his view is the literal reading of, the, of the, the verse, and I passionately deny that his view is the natural face value reading. I think contextually, it is clearly the symbolism view that is the natural reading, not the literal reading, but the natural face value reading. That I do think the symbol symbolic view is. The second reason to believe that the Lord's Supper is the true body and blood of Christ is the connection that is made with the Passover. Now the Last Supper happens during the Passover. Jesus and the disciples are sharing a Passover meal. And the Lord's Supper pretty clearly is the new Passover, or the fulfillment of the original purpose of the Passover meal. Now, as we look at the parallels with the Passover meal, what happens during the Passover? We have an act of redemption. I disagree that the Lord's Supper is the fulfillment of the Passover. I think that the actual sacrifice of Christ is the fulfillment of the Passover occurs in the Passover, which is that the lamb was slaughtered, the blood of the lamb is placed over the doorposts of those uh, who are in households of faith, and death passes over those households, uh, pretty clearly pointing to the blood, the death and blood of Jesus Christ, uh, where Christ's blood covers us so that we escape the realities of, of death as brought about right. by Adam's fall into sin. Right. It points to Christ and to the Lord's The Son. other part of that, though, is that this is then commemorated and celebrated through the symbolic eating of a lamb, right? No. Do they eat a picture of a lamb? No, they really eat the lamb. And so they actually eat the instrument of redemption. A lamb is the thing that's sacrificed, and an actual lamb is the thing that's eaten. Uh, and so there is a connection between the one who is sacrificed and then the one who's eaten. This is the case in all the Old Testament sacrifices. 
um, is that in those sacrifices where the, the animal was actually eaten, because in others, such as the burnt offering, it's totally annihilated and burned up, which is symbolic of God taking, taking it himself. Uh, but in any of those instances, the instrument of redemption, when it is an animal that is killed, that animal is eaten. There's not just a picture of the animal that's eaten. That animal is actually eaten. And part of receiving the blessings of that sacrifice, it's, it's a whole act, including the sacrifice itself, and then the partaking of that sacrifice, or the eating of that sacrifice, is, is very much a part of it. And so if this is what's going on in, in the Lord's Supper, that's the context there in which Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, then why would we believe that anything different is happening? I mean, pretty clearly, he's just using the language of sacrifice to say, well, I'm the one that's going to be sacrificed, and you are going to actually eat my body and take my blood. Instead of just eating the body of the lamb, now you're going to receive the true body and blood of the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let's begin with that latter portion and work backward. He just mentioned how you eat the lamb, not symbolically, but you literally and actually eat the lamb. Okay. But then he mentioned you do something else with the sacrifice, and that's that you burn it. And he tried to make that symbolic for the father accepting the sacrifice. Says who? As a matter of fact, his very argument, his, his, the very logic of his argument is the logic that Stephen Anderson, famous King James only fundamentalist Baptist, Stephen Anderson uses his same line of reasoning to argue that Christ, after his death, had to go into hell and suffer for three days. We have a fundamental difference in doctrine here. I believe yes, that Jesus Christ was in a place, his soul was in a place of fiery torment for three days and three nights I think it's heresy. before the resurrection. I think it's heresy. I believe and that he went to hell for three days and three nights. I, I he was consider, a burnt sacrifice. Every I consider, sacrifice is a burnt sacrifice. I, I consider that ab okay. okay, why, hold on, why is every sacrifice a burnt sacrifice? Okay, I'm, not, I'm not even going to bother anymore with that because we're Why was the Passover even, roast with fire? Even, you, why was the Passover roast with fire? Why is every sacrifice a burnt sacrifice? We've... I mean, you, you act like I'm alone on this doctrine. No, but I'm I do consider it heretical. Yeah, but, but am I alone on it? Uh, that's not the definition of heresy. Oh, I, I'm not saying it is, but you're acting as if this well, is a Kenneth strange Copeland doctrine. Believes it. Yeah, Kenneth Copeland believes it. Oh, okay. Steven Anderson used the exact same line of reasoning. Why? Well, because the Passover lamb was burnt. It is a burnt offering, and so Jesus had to go to hell and be burned. Same argument, right? Exact same logic. So I think that we're, we're, we're really on dangerous ground here. Really dangerous ground when we try to make these kind of parallels and fulfillments that the New Testament doesn't offer for us. So along those lines, let me also make two other points. First, the, the second point I make is he is right. They didn't symbolically eat the sacrifice. They ate, they actually literally ate the sacrifice. But the sacrifice was symbolic of the sacrifice, right? It was still a symbolic meal. The meal they're eating is still symbolic of an event. It's still a symbolic meal, and they're not eating the event that they are remembering. And in the same way, our view of the Lord's Supper, we are not eating the event that we're remembering. We don't eat the sacrifice of Christ. We remember the sacrifice of Christ in the meal. So I actually think, on the whole, our view parallels the Passover better. And then this will be the last thing I say. So kind of three points. Number one, when you use this line of argument, you can almost make anything say anything. We can prove that Jesus suffered in hell because the sacrifice had to be literally burnt, right? 
so that was my first argument. My second argument is that while they did literally eat their sacrifice, this is still steeped in symbolism. There's no transubstantiation. There's no consubstantiation. There's none of that. It's, it's still symbolic of an event that they're not eating. And then the third thing I'll say, to more related to the first point, to show how dangerous this line of reasoning is, I could use this logic to defend dry baptisms. We have in, in the Christian church, we have a lot of debate on baptism, uh, whether you do it to infants or to professing believers, uh, whether you sprinkle or whether you dunk. And even in the early church, there was even more variety. Some did it three times, some only do once. Some did it face down, some did it back down. Uh, so there's a whole lot of variety and debate over baptism. But here's the one thing we all agree on. Someone's getting wet. The sprinklers are gonna get less wet than the dunkers, but at the end of the day, somebody is getting wet. I could come along and utilize the very line of argumentation that Dr. Cooper's using to prove that if you're getting wet in baptism, you're doing it all wrong. Wet baptisms are unbiblical, they're unfitting. We need dry baptisms. Now, why do I say that? Well, because of the types of baptism in the Old Testament, these were all dry baptisms. First Peter chapter three, beginning in verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God on a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We clearly have Noah's Ark being a type for baptism, just like the Passover was a type for the Lord's Supper. Here's what's interesting. Uh, who was saved in Noah's Ark? The people in the water or the people not in the water? The people not in the water. They were not saved in water, they were saved through water, but they were kept dry. They were kept, the Ark, protected them from the water. We see this again, by the way, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So the glory cloud was a type of baptism and the crossing of the Red Sea was a type for baptism. How many people got wet in those baptisms? Zero, nobody got wet. The waters parted and they went through the water, but they never got wet. And there was no water in the glory cloud. So we have three types from baptism, and in all three of them, nobody's getting wet. They're all dry baptisms. So I could make the case that today when we baptize someone, there needs to be some kind of protection that keeps them protected from the water. Now, obviously, I don't believe that, but you see the point. How it, using typology like this is a dangerous game. So, yeah, is it true that they literally ate the meal and we don't literally eat the sacrifice? I say that's half true. Uh, but I, I just don't think that means as much as Dr. Cooper thinks it means. 
And the third reason is because St. Paul tells us that we actually participate in the true body and blood of Christ as we take the Lord's Supper. We see this in the book of 1 Corinthians, which says a lot about the Lord's Supper, uh, because Paul is confronting some false ideas, false notions about the Supper, and some abuses of this uh, sacramental meal. And in chapter 10, he speaks about this with some words that are really, really important for us to look at. This is verse 16. The cup of blessing which we bless, which is the cup of the Lord's Supper, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? And there are some different translations there. Some say things like partake in the body of Christ or, or participate in, um, have fellowship with the body of Christ, fellowship with the blood of Christ. There is a kind of participation in Christ's body that we receive with the bread. And there is a kind of participation that we receive in the blood of Christ as we take the cup. This certainly does not sound like it's something that's purely symbolic. He doesn't say we symbolize the blood of Christ, we symbolize the body of Christ, we think about the body of Christ, we think about the blood of Christ as we take this meal. Here's why I don't think that this requires us to interpret this as some kind of literal presence of the body of Christ, because the text goes on to make a parallel statement about false churches with false sacrifices. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? That is uh, absolutely true. But it goes on to say, because there is one bread, we are many are one body, if we all partake of one bread. And then here, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So notice, yeah, Paul does say, when you come to the Lord's Supper, and you partake of the bread, you, and you partake of the wine, you are partaking of the body and the blood of Christ. But what does he also say? When the people of Israel would, would commit uh, idolatry, and they would go, as they have often done, and the Corinthians were doing, and they thought it was okay, and that's why Paul is refuting them, I believe. When Christians go to other sacrifices, they are partaking of demons. And that's why he has to clarify that. He said, both, both Christians and pagans participate in the gods that they are worshiping. And so the objection would be, well, how is that the case? Because their gods don't exist, right? Like if, if, if you go to the altar of, of Baal and you participate in that sacrifice, how can you participate in Baal when Baal doesn't exist? How can you partake of something that doesn't exist? And Paul's point is because they call it Baal and it's a god they made up, but it's actually a demon. So you're right, the god doesn't exist. They don't, they're not participating in the god, but they are still participating in something and it's a demon. So Paul's point is if you go to the Christian Lord's Supper, you will participate in the body and blood of Christ. If you go to a pagan sacrifice, you will participate with a demon. And then he tells them, so stop doing that. Don't do that. Don't. Why would you want to participate with demons and then participate in the body and blood of Christ? So here's what, what's the point. Do Lutherans believe that in pagan sacrifices, 
there is consubstantiation. The demons consubstantiate with the sacrifice. Would a Roman Catholic say that demons transubstantiate? That the, the sacrifice of the pagans in, in, in Corinth, were, were those sacrifices being transformed into the literal flesh and blood of demons? Paul parallels participation with Christ's body and blood and participation with demons. And so I think what that tells us is that the way he understands participation is not a physical, literal sense. You can either participate with Christ or participate with demons. But the word and the concept is shared. So I think it's inconsistent to say, well, this is a different kind of participation than the other. Well, no, I, I think Paul's using them the same. So. Uh, no, I, I, unless you're going to be consistent and say that pagan sacrifices, there is a consubstantiation, that meat actually becomes the literal flesh and blood of a demon, then I don't think that you can just assume that to participate in the body and blood of Christ means that his body is literally present there. I, I, that's just not how Paul uses the text. And the fourth reason to believe this is because of Paul's warning that he gives in 1 Corinthians to those who abuse the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Now, for St. Paul, the Lord's Supper is something that, that is very special, and it's something that is, is very important. It, it's so important that those who abuse the Lord's Supper are getting sick, and some of them are even dying because they're abusing this thing. Now, uh, I would say that that doesn't immediately sound like this is just some kind of representational or symbolic action or some profession of faith that the church has that we use bread and wine to remember what Jesus has done for us. This is something that is much more special than that. And we see that particularly in the warning that Paul gives in chapter 11. Uh, and he says this, in verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. You are guilty of sinning against the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus when you sin in the Lord's Supper. Now, that's very important because he doesn't just say you're sinning against God. Right? It's one thing, yeah, sure. If we disobey God's commandments, we are sinning against God. And he could just say, you're sinning against God because you shouldn't be taking the Lord's Supper in this way. Or he could just say, you're sinning against Jesus because Jesus is the one who instituted the Lord's Supper and you're taking his words and you're messing up the whole point of what he instituted. But he gets more specific than that. And he says, no, you're sinning against the body of the Lord and you are sinning against the blood of the Lord, and you are guilty for that. You are so guilty that some of you are dying, getting sick and dying, because it is that serious. And, you know, this is kind of, this should remind us of some stories in the Old Testament where God's presence was, was in a specific place, and when people had abused that or done something that they weren't supposed to do when God himself was present, they would die. So Uzzah touches the ark, and he's not supposed to touch the ark, and because it was so holy, there were specific rules surrounding the ark. So he touches the ark, and he dies. And the reason why this was so important was because it was the place where God's presence was. It was the holy place. And this sounds like that, that, yeah, this is similarly where God's presence is, and that's why it's so serious. And not only God's presence in an abstract sense, but it is the body and blood of Jesus. And so the reason why it's so serious is because it's a specific sin against his body and then against his blood. So his body and blood are there 
We are taking it unworthily. You're sinning against that body and you're sinning against that blood. And so it definitely points towards something that is beyond a purely symbolic view of the sacrament. I would agree to some extent that 1 Corinthians 10 and then what he just read, and, and point number three he read from 1 Corinthians 10, point number four he read from 1 Corinthians 11, and I, I do think that those two passages together do challenge a purely symbolic view of the Lord's Supper. This is why I have begun to, began to study and embrace the Reformed perspective, which argues that there is something more going on than symbolism here, which is why the Reformers were adamant to say this is not mere symbolism, this is not mere memorialism. I, I do agree that the language about the Lord's Supper makes it, it's not, it's not just a, a sign of something. But that does not commit us to consubstantiation or transubstantiation. It does not commit us to a literal presence. The assumption here is that uh, something symbolic cannot be sacred. And the related assumption here is that something symbolic of whatever it's symbolic of cannot be treated as that thing. And that was a complicated way of putting it. Let me elaborate on that. I do agree that to abuse the Lord's Supper is to abuse the literal body of Christ and the blood of Christ. But I think that that can happen in a representative way. Let me just give a couple examples. They're both related. When Paul, before his conversion, was persecuting the Christian church, and yet Jesus, when he appears to Saul, says, why are you persecuting me? So. I can, with full confidence, say Saul was persecuting Jesus Christ, even though he never laid hands on Jesus Christ, he never touched Jesus Christ, Jesus wasn't in proximity to Saul during any of those persecutions, yet he was persecuting Christ because Christ is so closely represented by his people that he can speak of them as himself. We see this in the same way in uh, Matthew 24 or is it Matthew 25? I can't quite re recall exactly. I think maybe it's 25. Jesus says, when did you feed me? When did you clothe me? I was thirsty and yet you gave me nothing to drink. And everyone said, Jesus, when did we do these things to you? When, when did you? And he said, you did them when you didn't do them to the people who needed them. Because what you do unto the least of these, you do unto me, right? So Jesus is saying, the way you treat the least of these, consider that treating me. So to not feed them is to not feed me. To not clothe them is to not clothe me. So I'm not saying that th these things are directly parallel. I'm not saying that Christ is present in the Lord's Supper the way Christ is present with his people or with the least of these. I so I'm not saying, I'm not trying to make that parallel. The only point I'm trying to make is that I, f I, I reject the assumption that if something symbolizes something else, that it can never be treated like that something else. Because Jesus instituted the bread to be the sign of his body, to, to abuse the bread is to abuse his body. And I think we have biblical precedents for believing that. I think we have biblical or logical precedents for believing that. So uh, I don't believe that this language necessitates a literal physical presence, uh, but I think a symbolic presence can still be uh, accounted as that thing. And I think there are other biblical examples of that. And I think symbols can still be sacred. Yeah, we do agree that to abuse the Lord's Supper is to abuse the actual Christ, the, the literal physical Christ. But that does not mean, it does not, at least it doesn't have to mean a literal presence. I agree it could mean this, but I just think that 
we have to interpret all of these texts in, in light of the whole system. I think what he's demanding of the verse is not demanded by the verse, and his assumptions about the verse are not warranted assumptions. Now, the, the fifth and final point that I want to mention is that this is the belief of the early church. And as we look at the earliest interpreters of the Gospels, uh, they all accept with the possible exception of Tertullian, who some people interpret uh, in a little bit of a different way. But the majority, at least, of the early interpreters of the words of Jesus understood them to be in a literal sense, that when Jesus said, this is my body, he meant that we really do partake of his actual body and his actual blood in the Lord's Supper. Now, the interpretation of the early Christians, of course, aren't infallible. They're not scripture. Um, but those things are really important for us to look at because what they do is they challenge our assumptions. And when we ask, we should ask, what did other Christians in the past think about this? How did the earliest Christians understand these things who were closer to the world of the apostles themselves? especially those who knew the apostles did they have an understanding of these of these things i'll have the the smallest amount of commentary will be on this point because i'm just not well read enough on church history to confirm or deny this and so I, i'll just kind of let dr cooper speak but, but let me just let me just push back a little bit with the the tiny bit of reading i've done here are just a few points in terms of what did the early church believe about this number one he he claimed that is basically unanimous except for with the possible interpretation of Tertullian. There is a really good debate between my well, one of my favorite apologists. Turretin Fan has a good debate with Roman Catholic apologist William Albrecht on Augustine's view of the Lord's Supper. And I think Turretin Fan does a good job uh, demonstrating that Augustine would not agree with the Roman Catholics and based on his argumentation would also not agree with the Lutheran position. So I think Augustine probably would be closer to the Reformed view than to the Lutheran view. And so, because I think he's wrong about Augustine, that kind of makes me sus, you know, it kind of puts for me into question how he's reading all the other fathers on this. So, I guess I would just say, I'm not going to just believe that all of the early church read this literally, when I think he's wrong at, at, at least one person that he incorporates in there, so maybe he's wrong about others. Additionally, I will say that uh, based on my reading, I do think that the his, something similar to his position, a literal understanding of the body of Christ, is ancient. It's I think it, it is something that can be found in very, very early sources. I think it is an ancient doctrine. I'm just not yet convinced it was unanimous or it was obviously apostolic, um, but I don't think it was like some super novel invention. I do think a lot of Christians from the very beginning interpreted it one way and a lot of Christians from the very beginning interpreted it another way. So I'm not convinced it's unanimous. Maybe it is, maybe it's not, uh, but I would agree with him that it's ancient. As a matter of fact, um, Justin Martyr, uh, I read him recently, and I think Justin Martyr probably would maintain a literal view. Now, what's ironic is I think that Justin Martyr would still probably disagree with the Lutheran view. I think he would agree with the Roman Catholic view or something simil more similar to Rome's view than to the Lutheran view. So I, I think there are lots of fathers who maybe would disagree with me and Dr. Cooper, which is interesting to see what he would do with them. But nonetheless, uh, like I said, I'm just not well-read enough to make a bunch of comments on this, but I, I'm not going to just accept it. I'm not. I'm not just going to believe it because someone said it. Uh, another example of this is I, I don't remember if he gets to it in this video, but I know in other videos, in another video, he's he's used the example of how 
in the early church, they were accused of cannibalism, and they never denied that by saying, no, this is just a symbol. But in Justin Martyr, he deals with the cannibalism charges, and he does not attribute them to the Lord's Supper at all. Justin Martyr's writing to the, the Roman government, basically giving it a, a defense of why they should stop persecuting Christians, and why the things being said about Christians are not true. And he brings up these, this char these charges of cannibalism, and he basically says, Listen, it's very possible that there are some Christians out there who are maybe practicing these pagan rituals, but just know like we don't consider them Christians and, and we give you full permission to go after the cannibals. <laughs> so I don't, so Justin Martyr is not saying, listen, you call us cannibals, but this is the Lord's Supper. Let me explain to you why it's not cannibals. He says, no, they probably, there probably are actual cannibals out there, but it's not the Christians. So sometimes I just think some of the sweeping statements Dr. Cooper makes about church history are a little suspect. I'm not a church historian. I'm not well-read in church history. I would like to get to be more well-read. I'm working on it, but I'm just going to have to sort of give him the point on this one because I, I don't really know. But I, I don't think Augustine believed in a literal presence, and I'm not sure that other every single other early church proponent did as well. And the only other thing I would say about the historical perspective, because he goes on to quote some of the fathers, and, and I won't deal with those because, like I said, I'm just not well-read enough to take them in context. And, um, but nonetheless, all, all I would say is some of quotations I've heard from other people, not necessarily Dr. Cooper, they, they just simply quote people referring to the sacrament as the body and blood of the Lord. But that, 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 that's not proving anything, right? That's what Jesus says. Jesus says, this is my body. In the reformed world, we say, yeah, that's his body. This is his body. The question is, you know, what do we mean by that? So simply finding people who say, this is the body or you, you, when if you sin against this, you sin against the body. Well, yeah, that's just biblical language. The, the question is, what does that language mean? And so you need to find church fathers who actually address at length what they mean when they say this is the body of Christ. So, and again, I'm not, Dr. Cooper, you can go and listen to his video and you can listen to the quotations that he gives. I'm not accusing him of doing that in this video. I hope you found this helpful. Thanks for sticking around. I will still do that summation video, do a summary of all the videos kind of put together, something brief, and I hope that will be helpful to you. And then we will move on to a new project. But I do appreciate your attention. Uh, as always, maintain the gospel, maintain the fight. God bless.